PM board bombs. And today, on 60 Minutes, they say it's a condition that worries emergency medicine doctors the most. Arguably, living in some emergency medicine doctors' nightmares. On 60 Minutes. And before we start, as always, we like to promote emrapidbombs.supercast.com. It's our premium podcast, and if you listen to it, you already know how to handle this topic that lives in emergency medicine doctors' nightmares. We drop three to five minute episodes on EM Rapid Bombs with over 300 episodes now, and we've covered this topic exclusively with more than four episodes alone so you can sleep easily at night. Dr. Briggs, are you ready to discuss our topic? Yes, I am. Thank you for having me on today. The American people need to know about this. Yes, they do. That's why this is a 60 Minutes Bulletin. Dr. Briggs, the answer stem and the choices, you'll have to guess. The only hint I will give you on the topic that we're going to discuss is that it, again, freaks emergency medicine doctors out the most. And it's one they just don't want to miss. It might even live in some emergency medicine doctor's nightmares, excluding those who listen to emrapidbombs.supercast.com, because they, of course, know how to handle this topic. Choice A, acute coronary syndrome. Choice B, aortic dissection. Choice C, ischemic stroke. Or choice D, chronic Lyme disease. Dr. Briggs, can you correctly identify the topic of today's discussion? Yes, the correct answer here is going to be aortic dissection. Chris, cue the music. And we're back. All right. That was hard. That was painful. Those 60 minutes, guys and gals, you know. They have a tough job. I couldn't stay serious that long. Got it. It'd be hard. I just like crack a smile. Got our buddy Chris on today. End of the year episode. Yes. Christopher Nolan. To those who don't know, he's a friend of the podcast and a close friend. Dr. Briggs, make sure you send him another Christmas card this year, please. Hey, we're talking about aortic dissections today, and this is near and dear to my heart, no pun intended, because <laughs> this is... This is one of those conditions. Are you continuing your from the diarrhea episode we had last time? Yes, we had good feedback about that. It's gonna. We're just gonna keep running with it. (laughs) Stop it! God, you're the worst. We can't take too many jokes about aortic dissections because those are pretty serious. They (laughs) are. Yeah, we can't. Like diarrhea was easy to make fun of, but this one. Aortic dissection is like Beetlejuice. You just can't keep saying the name, or else someone's gonna get it eventually. I'm nervous even just talking about it, honestly. Yeah, exactly. So uh, in 2021, that was a fateful year for me. Just in a few months alone, if my residents are listening to this, they'll 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 know. And my colleagues, I had like four or five dissection cases in uh, like a less than two month span. It's amazing. And it was yes, amazingly bad. Yeah, that's like an amazing run. <laughs> yeah, it was awful. And so I have somewhat adopted this condition as something that I truly care about, like my pitch. You know what I mean? Mm. And uh, everyone has their pitches. You know, Marlena's is worms apparently, and. <laughs> Just won't get into that. Yeah. San Francisco anyway. episode. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hashtag ASAP22. Uh, anyway, a, acute aortic syndromes are a collection of life-threatening 
aortic pathologies, and they range from you know hematomas to dissection. We're covering dissection today. Yeah. They're extremely rare. They're a deceptively difficult diagnosis, though. And the reason you know they're so rare, but we still care about it, is because it's so catastrophic if we miss yes. it. Its rate is about three per one hundred thousand person years, and the problem is we've discovered more and more over the past years. It is very difficult to diagnose. In fact, one frightening study Terrifying. showed that. Yeah, this, this is so awful. One autopsy study showed that 63% of patients who underwent these autopsies were not found with a dissection prior to death. And to clarify that, that's they died, but it was not diagnosed. Yes. And that was the reason they died. And that's over half of them. Terrifying. Terrifying, terrifying. And the problem is, is that it's not just, you know, lack of CT. You know, a lot of people say, oh, we need to CT more. That's not the case at all. Uh, they've done studies, they show uh, that the diagnostic accuracy rate of us detecting dissection has not improved since the 60s. Hmm. <laughs> so there is no difference really in just ordering more CTs for our own pan scanning. You still have to pick who you're going to CT and who you're thinking about a dissection. It's difficult to do. So we're going to dive into some of the details here. We do have a handout on our website. We are going to focus on the mainstream stuff with dissection. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty, like, you know, cutting edge new uh, risk scores and things like that. We're, We're not going to dissect it too much, is what you're saying, basically. <laughs> That's good. We're going to give That's it the good. EM rapid bombs. Treatment. Give it the EM rapid bombs treatment. This is the end of the year episode. We're going out with a bang, so we want to make sure we give you guys what you need to know here for your upcoming IT and for life. Hey, what are the two classifications of dissection? Right. So Stanford Type A. So remember A, ascending aorta, hmm. may even progress to the arch. It's a lot of twice A's. as a lot common, A's. a lot of A's. It's twice as common as type B. And around 30% of type A's involve the arch. Then you're going to have your Stanford type B. That's the descending aorta. Important to kind of know those two different types, and we'll get mm-hmm. into why here later. You know what I like is uh, covering dissections right around the holidays, just in time for all the family to get together. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of those where you warm up to the fireplace you get really cozy, and you talk about a terrifying condition. Yeah, this is where you sit down for dinner and say, hey, guess what I saw at work today? Right? And you tell them, this is what terrifies me the most. And then a family member says, you know, I'm having some pain tearing into my back. And then things escalate. And then, yeah. Give us a pathophysiology. Sure. It's a tear in the aortic intima. That's the inner layer of the aortic wall. And that allows blood to enter that aortic media via that tear. And that word you're going to be looking for on CT imaging, it's called a false lumen. From there, the tear can basically travel down proximally or distally, much like a zipper on a jacket. Hmm. Uh, That's a great analogy. Yeah. Unzipping this jacket, quote, causes death, which is terrifying. Again, there's so many terrifying and harrowing parts of this. So if the tear moves in certain directions, this is why you get such a multitude of symptoms, and this is why it's so difficult. It's not just this obvious, like, okay, chest pain, back pain, done. You know, that's what you learn in medical school, right? I would say this is probably the most improperly taught condition in medical school in terms of diagnosis. They make it seem like it's a piece of cake. High blood pressure, uh, chest pain, back pain, sudden onset, bad pain, you're done. It, it couldn't be farther from the truth how difficult it is. And that's because, just think how visceral this condition is, right? We think of mesenteric ischemia being difficult. This is just like it. And that's because it's a vascular condition, and that's visceral. And you could have the tear move in different directions. So if the tear moves proximally toward the heart, 
You're going to get ischemic complications like aortic regurgitation, coronary ischemia. They could have like a heart attack, right? Right. And go to the cath lab. (laughs) Exactly. Might be showing things, right? Right. And I've had a case in the past where a patient came in with aortic dissection and they had tamponade. They were in shock. So you can have one of those too. It can move distally down into the belly where it causes, of course, mesenteric ischemia, renal ischemia, and eventually uh, aortic rupture, which is, is technically the most common cause of death. And then finally, it can go up into the brain and cause a stroke. And this is a, you know, then you give them TPA. <laughs> so yeah. this is just all the scary things that can happen in the various presentations just based on where the terror yeah. uh, goes. The disco after you give the TPA is quite certain after that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. You can just click uh, highlight and click admit to ICU if they're still alive. Hey, give us risk factors. I was going for disposed death, but anyways. All right. Oh, sorry. No, I know. I took that too, um, too complicated. My bad. <laughs> I'm still in the 60-minute mindset. You know, nothing simple on 60 minutes. There's subtlety to everything. By far, the most common risk factor is hypertension. All right, let's repeat that again. By far, the most common risk factor is hypertension. Mm -hmm. 75% of patients with aortic dissection have a history of this. It's huge. The more brump the increase in blood pressure, the higher the risk of dissection. That's why things like cocaine and methamphetamines are huge risk factors especially in young people. Absolutely. Aortic aneurysms, that's another risk factor, obviously. You know, these are the thoracic aneurysms, especially ascending ones. Having a bicupsid aortic valve, again, think about that more in younger folks. And then the more obvious genetic ideologies, right? I mean, these are like your Marfan's patients, uh, presents in, you know, 50% of patients less than 40 years old. And, you know, Ehlers Downloads and Turner Syndrome as well. So Briggs, when it comes to that presentation, uh, this is where things get really messy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, let's get into this. Not not as messy as C diff, but still pretty messy vascular wise. Yeah. Yes. No. Yes. More internally messy. Nothing's better than cheap diarrhea jokes. We heard you, listeners. <laughs> Oh, I can't believe it's running into this episode. <laughs> Never gets old. Okay, so presentation and dissections. Women, like acute coronary syndrome, often have a delayed presentation and are older than men. Mm. Like I said before, symptoms can differ based on the location of the dissection, of course. Now, acute pain, which I know is not very helpful here, is by far the most common symptom. It's found in 90% of patients. Sharp is the most common descriptor, but tearing would be the most specific. If someone says, I have tearing acute chest pain, that's going to be very scary <laughs> to hear. And, um, and of course, pain that is difficult to control, right? Chest pain patients in general, let's be honest, even ones that are having a heart attack, except for a few exceptions, their pain is pretty well controlled with even just oral medications, uh, sometimes even just a dose of fentanyl, and you're, you're good to go. And a lot of chest pain patients are ambulatory, you know, they're texting on their phone. These are not those patients. These are patients that are writhing in pain. And they may not be sudden onset, but they are in extreme pain typically. Now, and and here, here's a key caveat, though, Briggs, that, that I should mention and what I've seen in my own times when I've diagnosed this, is that acute pain they have could potentially resolve. So you really mm-hmm. need to ask them, when you were having that onset of pain, like how bad was it? And they'll oftentimes describe just the worst pain in their life mm-hmm. and just, you know, again, tearing pain into their back. And then they'll say, you know, feel a lot better now. It might, when we say acute pain, it's not necessarily a continued pain, but when they had that pain, how bad was it? Agreed. Awesome. 
Now, high blood pressure is common in type B dissections when, when patients present, but many patients, especially those with type A, can present normotensive. Now, it's something to think about, of course, in patients uh, that are coming in with elevated blood pressure and chest pain, but just don't dismiss dissection because someone comes in with a, a decent-looking blood pressure. Uh, they can still have aortic dissection, and a good amount of patients are high risk for this still. Now, what about painless dissections? Now, if you're listening to this for the first time and you're like, okay, I got this, I'm good to go, the nightmares don't scare me, and then you hear about painless dissections, you're like, never mind, I'm listening. <laughs> you got my full attention. <laughs> I mean, it, look, it's it's there. It's less than 7% in, in one retrospective review that was done on this, but uh, for these, diabetes tends to be the most common risk factor for a painless dissection, and yeah, that that doesn't really help you. So what I will what I will tell you is I took a deep dive into this yeah. and talked a lot about this at some conferences now. And from what I've seen is that the International Registry of Aortic Dissections and there's a few Japanese studies randomly, they all say that in general people with painless dissections are more likely the unresponsive patients. These are the patients in shock. These are the patients that have altered mental status or neurologic deficits. And it's not so much that they're painless, it's that they can't tell you they're in pain. Mm. Uh, it's that right. they're in severe shock or they have neurologic deficits from a stroke uh, from that dissection. And so just keep that in mind. You know, I wouldn't go home and, and have a restless night thinking, okay, I discharged a leg pain today. Was it sure. <laughs> was a dissection? These patients are very, very sick typically. Now with that, pulse deficit is not reliable. And its absence by no means excludes a dissection. However, its presence is extremely concerning. Why I mention this is because a pulse deficit and neurologic deficits are two of the only physical exam findings that are going to be there to help you. Now, blood pressure deficit between the upper extremities is not helpful at all. Yeah, this this, this one's the <laughs> disappointing one because that's how, you know, med school you're often taught yes. that. And then, you know, later you kind of realize, wow, just neuro deficits and pulse deficits on exam in terms that's of physical it. exam findings, that, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. And you can listen to it for a murmur. Yeah, I mean, come on. Who are we kidding here? Yeah. I love when podcasts go over it and they're like, well, a diastolic murmur for heart failure. I'm like, but really? Like, even yes. if you wanted to listen, you're in a loud department, you're rushing. Like, do you really have time to sit down and do that? I mean, come on. It's so absurd. It's just not realistic. Um, anyway, but blood pressure deficits between the upper extremities, the, the traditional thought here, I want to make sure we cover this because it's so poorly taught uh, by everyone around <laughs> where I've worked. And it's it, the thought is that there's a variation of greater than 20 millimeters mercury, and that's significant between the arms. It turns out this is just a total wash. It's so silly. Um, it's not commonly found. It's not reliable. And of course, they've done studies showing that the average person in the population has a variation in their blood pressure, 10 to 20 millimeters mercury, and sometimes greater than that. that. Is, up to uh, up to like up to like 50 percent of actually the population has a blood pressure difference between their arms like you and i could right now it's just not helpful at all i would stop doing it and like measure them it's so absurd uh so when when a resident or somebody comes up to me and tells me that and like oh it's normal i don't think they have a dissection I'm like okay come on my next question is always the pulse i'm like just just, just tell me if yes. there's like a difference in pulse. Yeah. i mean that's that's the only that's the only thing that's exactly really gonna help me. exactly and then we already covered uh hypotension of course this is scary this indicates rupture you know aortic valve disruption and tamponade this is where ultrasound is super helpful instead of wasting your time measuring blood pressures um, or listening for a murmur just grab an ultrasound and look at their heart and look for a tamponade look for a dilated aortic root it doesn't take much uh skill here uh, if you do any basic emergency medicine training nowadays you're gonna or you just watch a youtube video you can stick a probe on someone's heart and look it's really easy 
Syncope is another concerning finding. So they have syncope and then chest pain. That's really severe. That's extremely scary for a dissection as well, too. So Iltafat, tell us who is high risk? Who do we work up? This is very difficult, right? Because another part of this aspect of dissection is the testing is expensive and the workup is timely, you know, and there's harm for doing all that radiation from the scan. So uh, what do we proceed here? So you really should be asking the patient three questions. So for example, the quality of the pain. Is it sharp or is it tearing? You know, tearing is obviously more concerning. I talked earlier about how severe that pain is. It's not a subtle pain. It is a severe pain when it hits that patient. Next, you know, how abrupt was it? Was it sudden or was it a slow, gradual type of pain? Usually, it's a sudden type of pain. The radiation of the pain is important as well. Is it going down the arm of the jaw? Or more concerning for aortic dissection is radiation into the back. Oftentimes, it will be described as pain moving right into the center of the back or the center of the belly is how patients will describe it. That all said, you need to really think about dissection as chest pain plus. These patients don't usually just have chest pain. They usually have chest pain plus syncope, chest pain plus a neurodeficit, chest pain plus this tearing pain into their back. It's usually not just straightforward chest pain. Lastly, if you see a chest pain or a neuropatient with stuff that's not fitting in to a nice picture here, so you have a patient who has neuro deficits, uh, but they're also complaining of chest pain, but their neuro deficits aren't really making sense to you, you really should be thinking about dissection in your differential as well. We talked about some of these key questions to ask, some of the things you're looking for when you're examining the patient, the physical exam findings that you're looking for. Now you made the decision to evaluate for actual dissection. What are some of the imaging ways that you're going to be doing that, Blake? Before we get to imaging, obviously, if they have chest pain or shortness of breath or really even back pain sometimes, they're going to get an EKG. Now, EKG doesn't have any specific findings for dissection. However, about half of patients with dissection can show nonspecific ST and T wave changes. They also could have a heart attack in an ascending dissection about like 5%. So, of course, you know, people have asked me this before. They're like, what if I see a STEMI and EKG? What, how do I not know it's a dissection? I'm like, well, why don't you just go see the patient and talk to them? You know, <laughs> like, do a good history. <laughs> I don't say it really like that. Why don't you just talk to the patient and evaluate them and see, like, are they sitting there texting on their phone and they're like, hey, yeah, I've had a heart attack before and it's my third one. You know what I mean? Like, right, is right. it a straightforward diagnosis for heart attack? Or you go in the room and they're like, yeah, I can't feel my leg. Yeah, other stuff's going <laughs> and I have, And I may have back pain or I may have fainted at home and now I have chest pain. That's all very concerning. Uh, and I would pause the cath lab activation, talk to your cardiologist. If you have concerning symptoms on your physical exam, of course, the vast majority of cases will never have that. They're going to be easy. They're going to go straight to the cath lab. These are the minority people that you have to stop and think, Right. So what about chest x-ray? Everyone talks about this. This is another fallacy that's taught in medical school that you get the chest x-ray and it's normal, you're done. That's not true. So the wide and mediastinum in reality, in its absence, never excludes a dissection. It's only found about 50 to 60% of the time. Now, other things that you could see, loss of the aortic knob, like flattening of the aortic arch on the left side. You could also look for this thing called the calcium sign. We're not going to get into that stuff because it's great to know it. That's fantastic. But you're never going to rely on any of that stuff to go to sleep at night and say, whew, didn't miss any aortic dissection today. So <laughs> I will comment, majority yeah. of chest x-rays are abnormal in some way. 
with aortic mm-hmm. dissection, mm-hmm. which is still pretty crazy to think about. It's not necessarily that widening mediastinum, but a majority of them have some sort of subtle abnormality, um, yes. and they're not a normal chest x-ray. So that's why it is a great, at least initial step uh, to do for yep. patients that you're worried about. Yep. Now, quick note about D-dimer, because I know we're going to get questions about this. Oh, man. First of all, first, it's the sexy new thing people are talking about. Yeah. I've seen it trend on Twitter, even though Twitter is dying, apparently. And <laughs> it's in the death throes. Who knows? So, <laughs> we live in such a crazy world right now. So D-dimer is not ready for prime time here. It's just not there yet. One, it hasn't been validated. Two, ASEP gives it a C. The D-dimer research is promising. And what they've been doing is they have an aortic dissection risk-sensitive score or whatever. It's on MD Calc. You can look it up if you want to. You take the score, and then you team it up with a D-dimer. If the D-dimer is negative and the score is very low risk, then the patient has like a less than you know 5% chance or something like that, or even less than that, I think, of having dissection. The problem is, is that the study that did this was like a one-center study, and it wasn't even randomized, and it hasn't been externally validated. It's just not there yet. Yeah, and I, I think the key part is yet. I think yeah. maybe in five mm-hmm. to 10 years, that might change. Yeah. At least right now, if you're doing a D-dimer to rule out a dissection, that's probably not prime time. Uh, you need to wait at least a few more years for more research to come mm-hmm. out. Also, if you're doing a D-dimer to rule out dissection, you're thinking about dissection, just go ahead and scan Just, just scan. That's the key thing. <laughs> um, anyway, the CT angiography, that should obviously include the chest and abdomen. Usually, most centers have a CT aorta protocol. That's what you should be using here. And you're going to look for, you know, intubal flaps separating false to true lumen. And- I would like to mention a, a very specific thing here. It is critical the scan is done with contrast. I know that might seem obvious, but... Mm. A non-contrast scan is is not going to be helping you. Hey, what if what if they have contrast nephropathy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is if you're concerned enough, even with you know a GFR that might be off. Uh, that was a joke, by the way. Yeah, I, I know it was. It's not a real thing, uh, <laughs> especially if you know GFR is at least greater than thirty. But yeah. a non-contrast scan is not is not going to be effective rule out. Hey, Iltafat, cover or the treatment here will wrap things up. You know, obviously. Talking to your vascular surgeon. We get that. If you're at a center that doesn't have that, like the majority of people listening, transfer, of course. But yes. what are you doing in the meantime? Because I see so many people transfer to me because I thankfully work at a big center and so do you. And we see the wrong agents being started on people. So tell us what the right agent is and what you're doing here. It's important here to really understand, you know, like, like what are you trying to do in terms of vital mm-hmm. signs, right? You're trying to get the blood pressure down and you're trying to get that heart rate as low as possible. Um, so look at this kind of like as hypertensive emergency and, and you're needing to do this because you don't want that false lumen, that zipper that we talked about just unzipping, right? So you want to try to get your systolic blood pressure down into the you know 100 to 120s, heart rate less than 60. Now, agent of choice obviously is Esmol. I'm, so on the test and boards, Esmol, that's easy. You're going to be doing that, right? The problem becomes when the things like heart rate go down too much or blood pressure is going down too much. So again, Esmol is the one that boards are going to test you on. You can consider Labetalol as well. Now in order, it's going to be Diltiazem and then Nicardipine, Clovetipine, which is a relatively newer one that's used at hospitals now, and then nitroprusside. We're not going to even, honestly, just get nitroprusside out of your head. It's just not, that's not going to be used. You know, the goal is really to get that esmolol on, uh, even if the heart rate is is pretty low. But if, you know, the blood pressure is still high, 
and the heart rate is low. It's sometimes combination therapy with like a cabetapine and esmolol is utilized. The key things that you should not be using, again, this is important, key things that you should not be using, nitroglycerin, my gosh, please don't. Uh, oh please don't give hydralazine or any other kind of vasodilators that will increase ionotropy. Mm. But again, you know, esmolol is going to be the board answer in real life. You might need to do like a combo with esmolol and, uh, you know, having agents like nicardipine and clovetipine mm-hmm. going. In the, and remember that the esmolol dosing is extremely high. And it's funny because you'll have, you know, nursing come up to you and say, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you want to do this? And the answer is absolutely yes. Please push it immediately. And so remember that's a fast acting drug. It wears off quickly, has a short half-life. And so you want to give this as rapidly and quickly as possible. And yeah. That, it'll, yeah, as Ilsfot said, it doesn't matter about the heart rate. You want this blood pressure to be as low as possible, even permissively hypotensive. Right, right. And it's one of those things where you need to be actively engaging with the patient to make sure they're perfusing okay as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's key. And, you know, a heart rate in the 50s, that's okay as long as the patient's perfusing okay. Yep. Exactly and, right. you know, you can back off, you know, some of these medications as well. Some of the drips we talked about can cause some reflex tachycardia as well. That's another thing to kind of keep in mind. Again, Esmolol is going to be your gold. That is your, uh, I like to call it like the gold standard of treatment. You do everything you can to try to get that Esmolol going. Absolutely. Hey, I think we can wrap things up now. You and I have things to do. We uh, have the new year and the holidays coming up. Then we have important things on the list to get to, like not missing a dissection now when I go to work tomorrow. I know. I know. Well, uh, you know, if you listen to emrapidbombs.supercast.com, you can mm-hmm. check out more than 300 episodes we have there. I believe five of those episodes are on different ways that you'll be tested on aortic mm-hmm. dissection. Absolutely. So that alone will be a, a good one to listen to for some holiday listening for all you folks out there. Yeah, put it on for the whole family so they can hear it. Ah, they'd love it. They'd love it. Yeah, they would, love, they would sleep well. You know a comment I got from one of my residents, and a couple of them actually were at our Christmas dinner. They said the coaching section that we have on our you know EM Rapid Bombs podcast is their favorite. I was like, why? And one of them was like, that's when I know to pay attention. <laughs> I think that is the feedback we've gotten. It's if you already listened to our the premium podcast it's about three to five minute episodes and we wrap everything up in about 30 seconds and we have a a coaching whistle that comes on mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fantastic it, it basically reorients you but yeah you're like oh okay i'm here i'm back i'm, back. I'm here i'm back i'm back yeah, which makes which makes you realize how effective actual lectures are if you're not even paying attention to those right or even <laughs> one hour long two hour long podcast that oh my gosh a lot of yeah. em folks do you know it's yeah. nuts yeah I like how you threw shade there without mentioning names. No, um, hey, hey, no shade. They're much needed. Some folks really like listening to yes, two to three hours yes. of Pathophys. That, yes. That's fine. Yes. Notice how we did not, in our drips, get into get into the details about dosing. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah not, no, not thank you. Dosing the just the mechanism time. of action. We didn't get into any of that. But yeah. anyway, all right. Yeah, beta blockers block beta. That's all we know. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to get that. <laughs> hey, we got some exciting things coming up in 2023, don't we? 
Oh man, huge! We got some exciting things. If you thought Ian Bourbons was was done innovating, we have some amazing innovation. Some new partnerships, absolutely. New partnerships coming up. We have a new type of podcast style. We're going to release. We won't. We don't want to release any ideas right now, but we have something in the works that's going to come out in the spring. We're very very excited to tell you about it coming up, especially for medical students. We're really excited to tell you. Expanding, expanding the reach, continuing to slowly take over. Take over the world. I feel like we've tried not to, and it just happened, though. We're an accidental empire. I, I, I think so. I think yeah. like our goal was just yeah. like, you know, all right, whatever. We're the anti, you know. I feel like we didn't try to take over, but somehow it happened because we mm-hmm. weren't trying to. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I mm-hmm. think we went into this thinking that, you know, we're going to be casual, informal. No one's really going to listen mm-hmm. to it. People are going to gravitate more towards the super nerdy podcasts. Mm-hmm. And then somehow that didn't happen. Yeah. We found out that if you tell cheap diarrhea jokes, people will come back. They come back. Apparently that's attention grabbing. Maybe it's like the sorcerer's stone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For it's, all- it's like you, you can't you can't desire it, but you have to not want it and then you get it. Isn't that yeah. like the stone? Maybe that's it. You know? Yeah. Maybe that's it. And we are the sorcerer's stone of podcasts. There you go. Do you know that book do you know that book is called something different in the UK? Yeah, it used to be called the Philosopher's Stone. There you go. All right, well that's it. Old Fod, it's been a pleasure. I'll see you in twenty twenty three. Always. Yeah.